Welcome to The Right Note, a podcast dedicated to the independent author. From the craft of storytelling to the business side of publication, we cover it all. I'm Jay Ryan Fenzel. And I'm Kira F. Jacobs. And this is The Right Note. Welcome to episode two of The Right Note. Excited to be here. Before I start off, I just want to say I love our theme music. I do too. It made me smile. <laughs> no brainer which one we had to use. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I wasn't I wasn't sure, but I was hoping you would pick it. And it gives no you a little pro- uptown funk feel. It it really does. And probably no <laughs> one knows what we're talking about, but we had a different uh, uh theme music at the head of the uh episodes. And I was a little concerned with some copyright uh issues because it was a Dan Fogelbird song. And um I didn't have rights to use it. So um, went and did some research, and I found what I think is a better intro song. So I hope everyone likes that. Um, as we left off in the last episode, we started talking about Kira's novel, her new novel, uh, The Testimony of Bendigo Fletcher. I wanted to dive deeper into that story because I really like a lot of the aspects and, and characters and relationships that you put into the story. But I'll, I'll do a quick recap and correct me where I go wrong here if I do say something incorrect, all right? Okay. All right. So The Testimony of Benjigo Fletcher is a fantasy novel uh, in the young adult Christian genre. And it tells the story of the land of Tarsha, where the afterlife has been stolen from the people by uh, evil, shadowy spirits called twilights yes that is correct and the people basically have no hope for their future they they are under the fear or hopelessness that when they die there's nothing after that right so and and it's like at at least with with us today we have hope uh you you and i both are of a christian faith so we have a very strong hope in the afterlife so for something like this to happen in our world, it would be just devastating. And I think you convey that very well in in the story with your characters. What happens uh, in in the book is there's a character named Bendigo Fletcher, and he is what you call a wimp. And just give me a quick little rundown on wimps. On what a wimp is? Yes. What what is a wimp? So basically, wimps live in Wimsalon. It's a marshland, treehouse village setting. So whims physically are uh, hollow boned is how I describe it in the book. Um, because since they live in the marsh, they have to be able to walk around in that terrain and not sink into the mud. So their hollow bones help them to actually walk on top of the mud, which would be super cool if I could actually do that, but I can't. So I created a character again. And then, That's why are we right? <laughs> right. Uh, they're also characteristic of, or a characteristic of their physical being is that they can climb trees really well, which humans can also climb trees, but whims can do it like maybe like an animal would, like effortlessly, just naturally. Those are really the only physical characteristics that I like focus on that are kind of needed to know in the book. I mention um, I mentioned along the way that a lot of them are thin framed, which goes along with the hollow bones. 
and also how they view the female side of whims as very beautiful, um, almost like angelic in a way. Which you described one of the characters, Willie, doesn't feel she falls into this category. Yes, because Willie, who is my female whim, who is Bendigo's childhood best friend. Which her full um, name is, because Willie's a nickname. So what's her full name? Her full name is Willow, which you would you will find out later on in the book, near the end there. But she likes to go by Willie because it she feels like she can identify with that better because she's not she doesn't feel beautiful or angelic like a lot of the other female whims are. Which is another it's, a, it's another thing I, I want to talk to you about, and we'll get to that in a sec because you touch on some things um, like like. Willie not feeling like she fits in with the the ideal female whim, right? Which I think is a very common feeling for especially uh, young adult teens, preteens, what have you. You know, when yeah. when, when kids are still trying to find themselves, right? Mm-hmm. And then Bendigo, and and we're gonna get in depth on Bendigo in a sec here, but Bendigo is the main character, and he is thrust into the story when the Book of Prophecy, which is kind of the keeper of of all the history and all the lore and all the mythology of Tarsha, uh, this book is kind of a magical uh, tome. And one day it opens and it spells out that Bendigo himself will be the one to seek out a man named Dagon, who is uh, believed to have the power to bring back the afterlife to Tarsha. So Bendigo here, and, and, and he had no idea this was coming. It was totally blindsided when this happens, and, and he hears his name written in the book. So he takes off on this journey to go find Dagon. Now, one thing I liked about that is that testimony of Bendigo Fletcher, to me, in a lot of ways, it's a story of hope amidst hopelessness uh, of determination and it's a book a story rather of choices that characters Mm -hmm. make like bendigo did not know that it was his destiny to do this but when he heard it he went now there was no physical threat to him to not go like if he just said heard it and like oh i can't do this i'm gonna hide in my treehouse he could have done that and not been like um in harm right and the, mm-hmm. the way i read it yeah but he didn't do that he chose to accept this role i mean without much thought at all because he he really he really felt hopeless yes that's like that's like you know his driving his driving feeling is he can either you know live safely in his world knowing that when he dies that's it or he could push himself and accept the accept the journey and hopefully bring back the afterlife. Right, because Bendigo har- harbors more hope than most people in Tarsha. Like his brother, Bendigo's brother in the book, y- you, you write him as kind of being pragmatic. Like, well, there's nothing we can do about it, so we mm-hmm. might as well try and make the most of life and, and, and enjoy ourselves and what have you. So you do a good juxtaposition between the two brothers. And I like that a lot. But the other thing that impressed me with, with your story, and, and, and I wanted to bring this choices aspect up is that 
along the way, and I won't give I won't give too much away, but Bendigo and the the people he eventually teams up with to to uh, return the afterlife, they come up against some opponents who weren't always opponents, and it ends up that some of the the villains or the bad guys, for lack of a better word, are just kind of people who chose to be that to to accept to accept what was happening in their world and to kind of um, take I guess maybe the easy road or or a road that they might think uh, benefits them mm-hmm. and that was really impressive to me because a lot of times in, in these kinds of stories you know the the villain will come down and uh, I think like an Avenger is the first one. Loki touches uh, Hawkeye with this thing, and and against his will, he became mm-hmm. this drone for Loki, right? But in this case, it was a conscious decision these people made to join the the dark forces for their own reasons. Now, how did you come across that kind of idea to do it that way? I guess it kind of stems from knowing that even even if you consider yourself a a good person, which I think most people do, um, you still have to make decisions that you can make good decisions or you can make bad decisions. And, you know, with the Christian faith, it kind of goes along with like, you can make, you can make a decision to do the good thing or you can do the evil thing. And that can even be something as simple as like, talking poorly about someone or, you know, little things like that. It's still considered evil. You still have that like desire to do those evil things. And so I just kind of stemmed from that thinking like, okay, there are definitely, there are definitely people who aren't as strong in going for making the good decision because sometimes making the evil decisions more enticing or like evil can be attractive, you know? Right. Right. That was the whole thing with Dracula, right? They made Dracula, um a very attractive charming person mm-hmm. to say hey evil isn't always ugly and, and isn't scary it can be seductive yeah right? absolutely so i think it's just kind of pointing out or bringing to light that like no one is really absent of evil you honestly have to make a conscious decision to do the good thing or to be a good person you know no, and i and I, I i like that a lot you know and it and I like Benigo's reactions when he realizes what's happening is that it really bothers him. Mm-hmm. It really affects him. And this kind of gets into the next thing I want to discuss with Benigo's personal struggles. Um, any, any struggles with depression? And I heard you discussing this when you were saying you were raising, and, and not on a soapbox kind of way, but you were raising kind of mental health awareness issues. Mm-hmm. Can you get into that a little bit with uh, what what you've written into Bendigo's character? Yeah, I think as a creative, and you might you might relate to this too. Sometimes regular life can be so mundane. You just do you do the same thing over and over, and like you feel trapped because your brain is constantly creating stories and fun places to go. But in real life, it's not always that fun. That can be like really depressing. And I know that for myself, sometimes a lot of the times, actually, like. I can feel myself just in this phase of like not feeling anything in a way, I guess. And then when I write, I literally almost instantly feel better. It's like, you know, they say writing is an escape. 
I would identify with that phrase. And so Bendigo. But it's also a therapy. It's kind of a therapy too, oh, yeah. right? Yeah, 100%. Right? Yeah. Like, I don't want to go to therapy. I want to write. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and that's why that was a neat dimension to add to Bendigo because you show him struggling with these things, but you also show him overcoming them and going on this journey and facing all the things he faces mm-hmm. to get the job done. Yeah, I think what's important to note, I think, and what I try to do with Bendigo's character is even though he does struggle with with feeling depressed and feeling kind of isolated, he still has people who want to be with him and hang out with him, like Willie cares about him even through his struggles. Because I think a lot of people, especially in today's culture, think like, oh, I'm I'm feeling depressed or I'm feeling down. People probably don't want to be near me, you know, or I must be a drag to be around, that kind of thing. And so I wanted to highlight that, like, even if that's something you struggle with, that doesn't mean people don't want to be there for you. That doesn't mean that you're you're alone. I think a big thing for right, Bendigo right. is loneliness. Like he isolates himself because he thinks people don't want to be around him, but just showing through the people that he's around in the book that that's not true. Right. And, and, and that's another important message you bring up. And I like you brought up Willie because it kind of gets into the next thing I want to talk about is um, the relationship you drew up between Bendigo and Willie. Mm-hmm. And it's a really good job of showing how their relationship transforms over this adventure. You know, it starts out as I mean, they were childhood friends, right? But as the story goes on and they go through all these things together, Bendigo realizes there's more to this relationship than there used to be. Mm -hmm. And you do a great job of kind of like his inner monologues about this and their conversations and, and the awkwardness that slips into their, into their dialogue where they never felt that before, you know, Mm -hmm. and I'm very impressed here with with how you've done that. And there's one scene in particular. Oh no. No, no, it's, it's an example of, you set a scene really well, and the interplay between the characters is is executed very well because Benigo goes to talk to Willie. I, I think they're in an end uh, somewhere on, in their adventure, and he walks in, and she's lying on this bed with her feet up on the headboard. I love right? writing that scene. And, you look, <laughs> and and he looks at her and he's like, "Well, what are you doing?" And and she explains that it calms her. Right? I mean, what what were the it like you know kind of help me yeah with when you're you know if you raise your feet above your head your your the blood rushes to your brain so she she knows this that's how she like calms herself and kind of rejuvenates herself you know at and, night and Bendigo was like freaking out about something right so she said hey come here you try it and he did yeah and and um I can picture that scene in a movie really so kudos on the imagery and the relationship stuff. That was, it's really well done the way you do those characters. Thank you. Did you have this whole relationship figured out when you started writing it? Yes, I actually did because they were the first characters that I came up with. And honestly, when I first came up with the idea for the book, their names popped into my brain first. And I knew that they were childhood best friends and I knew that they they were going to become more than that. And honestly, that was like the first thing that I came up with, actually, before I started writing the book. So yes, I did know. <laughs> and, you, and you had it kind of drawn out how it was going to transform and, and move along. Yeah, I didn't have it. I didn't have it written out in depth of like, when they were going to say certain things or, you know, I whenever I'm writing dialogue, I love it to be kind of organic. 
So, um, right. yeah, I, writing dialogue is my favorite thing. I look forward to it so high, so much. <laughs> so yeah, when they, when I write, when I write dialogue like that, I let it be very organic much as I can. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's fun to write dialogue. I mean, some of the best lines I've ever written, I've never thought or planned out. It just, or like you say, organically mm-hmm. kind of showed up between the two characters and the situation and just hit the page. Right. Yeah. And it's like, I wish I can say I calculated that out, but no, it just happened. You there know? And are it, moments though, where, where I'll be on a run or in the gym or whatever. And I know that a scene's coming up and I'm thinking about it. And if dialogue does pop into my head, I'll put it in my phone notes and I most likely will use it later, but it doesn't happen all the time. <laughs> no, but it's, it's a good, good thing to do. I I'm trying to think if I've, I, I haven't taken notes. I know I've heard things or said things. And said, "That's going in a book, yeah, for sure." You know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and looking back now, I'm like, "What was that?" I don't remember. <laughs> so I need to take notes. Yeah, I need to take notes. Uh, the, okay, so another another relationship Benigo has in the book was Benigo and Shem, and I think Benigo meets Shem along the way. Yeah, he meets him at the ports of Orphic is where he meets him, and they become friends, mm-hmm. and they have some good male bonding, right? But you also. And again, um, you're kind of revealing sides to relationships that maybe this kind of story doesn't always reveal. Mm-hmm. And there's some vulnerability that they discuss. Shem and Benigal discuss things, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I think especially in fantasy, men can almost seem like macho, you know, and that's kind of it. They're like fighters or they're the villain. Yeah. That can happen a lot. And um, I love reading books where the male character is like more introspective and honest about how he's feeling. And so I wanted to write characters that like, yes, you see them being warriors or warrior-like, but also you see where they're having real conversations about like, okay, I just I just harmed somebody because I was trying to protect you, but I feel like, you know, guilty about that and have a conversation about it because I don't, I think that would be normal. I think, I think if you had never, you know, if you'd never killed someone before and then you did, you would honestly kind of be freaked out. Yeah, or and if your nature, that. your nature is, is peaceful and you're not out to do this, you know, like you're not a violent person, mm-hmm. then yeah, it makes sense that the, the feelings afterwards would be like, Oh, what have I done? You mm-hmm. know, I mean, am I ever going to be the same again yeah. or things like that and you don't see scenes like that like you said in fantasy novels very mm-hmm. much and i think it, i applaud you for showing that too there's a lot of non-standard things you put into the story that i think elevate it and make it better you know mm-hmm. so well done on a testimony of bendigo fletcher care um, Thank you. and again you have uh you have very strong christian themes in it mm-hmm. and you do it well meaning the best commentary or the best messages are the ones that aren't explicitly thrown at the reader. Mm-hmm, yeah. Right. Like I can think, for example, C.S. Lewis, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that was just about a Christian allegory. But so many people can watch that and not really know that. Yeah. I'm sure there's a ton of people who don't realize that the Lion Aslan is pretty much Christ. You know, I watched I watched that movie with a friend. You know her. She's a Christian. And we started watching it and I said, you know, I love this movie. I love I love how it's like the Christian theme whatever. And she said, "This is a Christian movie?" 
I was like, <laughs> Narnia? Are you kidding me? But yeah, like that just proved people, you know, they don't always pick up on that. Did she watch the end of it? <laughs> <laughs> we did that night. <laughs> so yeah, no, but my point is that, yes, you can get these messages and these themes and these ideas uh, and very important ideas and themes and, and, and messages across in very entertaining, clever way. Yeah. So that was very nice. Um, I want to slip now into kind of back into the real world for just a little bit for the end of our, our episode here. So the road to getting Bendigo Fletcher onto the page, you decided to go the independent author route. I did. And I did the same thing when, when I um, started out with uh, my novels and I guess reasons for doing that. What? What? Give me, give me some the top reason that you decided to do this. The top reason. Well, I was constantly on a pendulum of like when I first decided I wanted to take writing seriously. I be, probably because you were an independent author, I was like, that's what I'm going to do, and that's like the only way I'm going to do it. And then I started learning more about traditional publishing, what that looked like, and then just learning how long that process is. And honestly, just how little control you have in traditional publishing. I think that deterred me away from that for this specific book. So not to say I'm not going to try and pursue traditional publishing in the future, but for this book, I felt like independent publishing was what I needed to do because there was so there's so much in this book of like myself, of issues that I feel like I want to address, you know, my faith, all that kind of stuff that I just wanted complete control of it and know that it was going to be what it is because I'm the one who's going to change things, you know, that kind of thing. And honestly, the main thing was like control. I just wanted control. Right. And and today, today, I guess uh, it's been this way for a while now, but so many people are so concerned about offending people or being offended, right? And and it's very sad that some of the things that we read or see in a story as totally common sense or normal or, or acceptable, like good and evil and dark and light. Yeah. So it, it, it's today, it's like, so, oh, well, we can't say that. Or, oh, and you know, uh, this viewpoint is kind of makes me uncomfortable. So why don't you change it and things like mm-hmm. that. That, and, and I can see in, in, in Bendigo that there probably be some things that if a traditional publisher pick it up, they might say, hmm, let's, uh, let's change this, let's change that, because, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so definitely creative control of, and especially the story is so close to, to you, your um, beliefs and, and so forth, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the other part of this is, and it can be down strictly uh, uh, to a numbers thing too. Uh, I just read an article, like a blog article from bookbaby.com, which is the company I use to do my eBooks uh, for producing and distributing, but they have a newsletter and they put out info for uh, independent authors and stuff. And they kind of broke down numbers saying, well, in traditional publishing, if um, let's say you do get lucky enough and win a lotto and signed with a mid-press publishing house, right? Well, you're an unknown author. So you'll get an advance of maybe three, $4,000, maybe. You won't see any royalties off sales of your books until the advance is paid for. You will be doing most of your marketing 
yourself because they don't have the money to back all their authors, right? They And they want a sure thing, you know, they'll put money into somebody who has demonstrated they can sell 50,000 books, right? So you are relinquishing control, you're relinquishing uh, the financial part of producing and selling books Mm -hmm. versus the independent self-publishing route where with technology today, the book production field is leveled. You can make just as high quality books as anyone else on the planet, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I've been doing it for 20 years and, and, and Bendigo Fletcher, you, you got the um, advanced copies in about a month ago. It's all available on Amazon now. And it's great. It looks great. The cover's great. Great graphic artist. The good quality paper printed out beautifully. So there's no disproportionate quality drop-off between indies and uh, standard publishers now. Mm-hmm. And you're going to do all your own marketing, but you're going to do that anyway yeah. with a traditional publisher, right? Yeah. But now when you sell an ebook or now when you sell a, a print book, you're not sharing 50, 60% with, with your publisher. You're not having money held back because you got a, a paltry royalty that you're going to work real hard to sell a bunch of books just to make that back for them, mm-hmm. right? So this article kind of broke down saying you're better off. In fact, and, and I'm telling you... I read this article and like, I could have wrote this 10 years ago because yeah. these are some of the reasons that I went and did it this way as well. Right. So Kira, were there, were there any unexpected challenges that you happened to, upon as uh, you got into this publishing, uh, this publishing adventure? Hmm. Well, I think what was unexpected for me was just maneuvering around Ingram Spark, which is the distribution and printing company I used, uh, which a lot of indie authors do use. I just, you know, I obviously was brand new to it. And so I had never worked with them before. And I think that was the hardest part, just making sure that I did everything right. And in my head, it was going to be a little bit easier than it ended up being. And I had a couple meltdowns. And honestly, that was the hardest part was just doing something I'd never done before and trying to get over obstacles that I came into contact with. Well, yeah, I mean, it's like anything new you do and get into, you learn there are things or aspects or little details about it that you didn't know about, right? But now that you've done it once... Uh, I'm sure the next go around will be a little smoother or at least not yes. to expect, right? Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> so what would you say is crucial to know before going into independent publishing? Uh, if you were to advise somebody else, what what is the one thing they have to know before they do this? I would just say, take your time and don't rush. I think that's what is very attractive about independent publishing is since you're in control, you can do things faster than if you were to do traditional publishing, but that doesn't mean you should do it as fast as you can. No, I agree with that because my first my first three, I think, novels, I kind of did it on a very relaxed timetable, meaning when they were done, they were done. Mm-hmm. For some reason, equal measure, the fourth one. I said, I'm going to put a publishing date out there. I'm going to have it done by this date. And I scheduled I scheduled a show to do with the new book. 
it was the, the, the beer and wine show on Jackson. Yeah, yeah. And man, it was like, as soon as I did that, then you, you feel the calendar. And it's like, mm-hmm. oh man, you're kidding me. I, I got my, my, my cover's not done. And, and, and getting back and forth with my cover artist was like taking days and, 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 and a week at a time and um, going through my edits and getting my edits back from the, um, from my editor was taking longer. And, mm-hmm. and it was like, why did I, why did I pick a date? You know what I mean? I mean, I had to push my date at like, <laughs> yeah. you know, <laughs> I mean, I'm sitting there typesetting uh, the final version of the manuscript uh the day before i had to get it to the printer uh for (laughs) so yeah i'm not gonna put a date like that out there and if i do it's gonna be so far out that i'll know i'll be able to hit it without a problem yeah right Mm -hmm. but yeah it is an advantage of um of independent publishing And, and i think one one worth mentioning to do because all authors are very like excited to get their work out to be available for people to read. You know, we think it's mm-hmm. like, oh, we got to get this out like right now. But if you take the time and you do it right, it'll be so much better for you and your and your your book or your story uh, and actually your career too, because you want to put the best book out there you can and then right. uh, don't rush it. Right. Mm-hmm. So what's what's been your favorite part of this uh, process? Mm. That's such a good question because there are so many good things. Like even, even just writing the book was fun, you know, and then you get to publishing and now I'm having people I know who are like texting me saying, telling me what chapter they're on and the parts that they're enjoying and that kind of thing. I think that is, that's really rewarding. It gets back to that, that story in your head suddenly is in other people's heads thing we talked about last time. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. It's like, it's like, oh, shoot, you're actually reading it. That's crazy. <laughs> I think that's been fun. Um, and also, honestly, I think marketing it on social media has been really fun because the I'm on Instagram and TikTok now, which is just fantastic. Um, no, TikTok's hilarious, but there, TikTok has a whole thing called book talk, and it's all about books. And that has been really fun to like actually be a part of and like be involved in. I've, I've really actually enjoyed that surprisingly. So I think that's been fun too. Well, you do, you do put out some really nice posts and reels and things on Instagram and they're genuine too. They're not like schmaltzy, Hey, buy my book. You know, it, it's, yeah. they're tasteful and, and they're, they're genuine and, and they're good. Oh, which reminds me, I did, read another article uh, about um, promoting using YouTube, you know, oh, and, it's yeah. kind of, and it's a, they call it like an alternative to like TikTok uh-huh. and they give reasons why YouTube might be a better venue. So we'll, we'll go over that and maybe we'll do an episode on, on that aspect of, it, you know, so you told me one of your favorite parts, uh, what has been your least favorite part? Oh, I don't know. I don't, I don't really think I have something that I'm like, Ooh, I don't like this particular thing. I think, like I said, a big reason why I chose to do independent publishing is because I like, I wanted to have control. And so in the moments where I don't have control over something, I don't like that. Like for instance, it took forever for Amazon to get my picture of the book up on the listing. And that was annoying to me. Because the ebook 
the ebook image was up there already, which is was, the same was, image. No, it was a different. I it was I uploaded different things because you have to upload different. See, that's the whole thing. There's different different formats, versions, and formats. Yeah. The artwork was the same though. Yeah, but <laughs> the same darn thing. And but I uploaded four the front long. and back for the one, and then I uploaded just the front for the other. So it was this whole thing. But like that kind of stuff that I don't have control over is like so irritating to me. But that's just, ugh, that's just, you know, you can't control that. So, but honestly, I don't think there's really been anything that I don't like necessarily. Well, that's a good answer. I mean, you don't have to have something you hate about it. But I think one of my favorite things in the process is seeing a book cover for the first time. Oh, yeah. Um, I agree. That's really fun. Because you're, you've, you've poured out yourself into the story. And you you want to find this image that encapsulate what the book is about and communicate with the cover artist. And when you finally see it, the finished product is like, that's it, right? Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's always it's always a high spot for me. Yeah, I, I agree. And honestly, what my cover, what my graphic designer, Rena, did, what she came up with was pretty much exactly what I was imagining. So I thought that was really cool that she could take what I was telling her and, and create what I was thinking. That's insane to me. Yeah. And, and it's a, it's a beautiful cover on your book. Uh, we don't have uh, for this podcast, we're not, we're not doing the video portion of it, but I uh, go online for uh, on Amazon and you can see the, the cover art, beautiful, beautiful cover for the, the testimony of Bendigo Fletcher. And I think we're getting close to the end of this episode. All right. Keep uh, checking back for uh, new episodes of The Right Note coming up. We loved having you. (laughs) Thanks. Talk to you soon. Bye.